The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate. We choose to go to the moon. Talking Space, number 232, for the week of September 18th, 2010. My name is Gene McCulka, and I'm joined today by Mr. Mark Reiterman. How are you doing, sir? Hi, Gene. Good to be here. Wish we had the uh, crew compartment full, but uh, I guess it's just going to be us. Uh, who's flying this bird, anyway? Uh, I think we both are at this point. Uh, today, we are going to be talking about something very, very interesting, uh, we are going to be looking at what has been dubbed the Hubble T- Space Telescope for Cosmic Rays, the Alpha Mag- Magnetic Spectrometer Experiment. Uh, so what is this little experiment all about, and why is it so important? Well, we're going to be covering a little bit about that today. Um, so what is it? It's basically a state-of-the-art particle physics detector. It's designed to operate as an external module on the International Space Station, It will use the unique environment of space to go ahead and study the universe and its origin by searching for antimatter, dark matter, while performing precision experiments of cosmic rays, composition, and flux. Um, It was built by a consortium of 16 countries, and NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, is responsible for delivery and installation of of the AMS experiment onto the International Space Station, However, something that kind of surprised me while, while doing the research for the show, it is actually a Department of Energy experiment and not a, a NASA critter, which, which kind of uh, surprised me a little bit. Um, AMS will essentially help answer some pretty interesting questions. About what makes the universe's invisible mass up? Or what happened to all the, the antimatter in the universe? In the universe? Uh, the AMS device was delivered on uh, August 26th of uh, 2010 over at the uh, shuttle landing facility at uh, KSC. It was delivered from Geneva, Switzerland via C-5 Galaxy aircraft and touched down that morning. And, Mark, you were there, weren't you? Yeah, I sure was. Uh, I want to thank uh, NASA for approving me for that media event. Uh, you'd expect it to have been a gigantic thing, but uh, really the press was uh, kind of a small number. And I guess it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, major media doesn't take something like that as big time because, and well, you know, to be honest, if they had, it would have been 30 seconds on the news and that would have been it. But I think we can do it, hopefully a little better justice. And uh, I just want to make a, a statement about some of the people that were there and, and the hundreds, literally hundreds that were not um, these scientists and professionals that we're going to be talking about referring to, 
I have the greatest respect for. And if I mispronounce names or places or misstate the programs that that people are part of, it's by accident and not due to respect for these world-class men and women and the work that they're doing. Um, So back to Thursday, August 26th, at uh, Kennedy at the shuttle landing facility, as you said, they had a C-5 come in from Geneva, Switzerland, and on board was the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer 2. And uh, first, just for fun, um, before I go too far into that, let me talk a little bit about where I was. And this was a treat in itself. You know, people have heard me say I work for the FAA. I'm a technician. I've been around airports and runways and taxiways and all this stuff for, for a long time. And so it's funny, but I still look up when I hear a plane fly by. Gee, what's that? And so here I am at the three-mile-long shuttle landing facility, three-mile-long runway, and looking for a gigantic plane to come in. And it's funny, never saw it land. It was so quiet, and we had a tree line between us and the approach end of uh, the runway that when we saw it, it was actually down to a uh, slow taxi speed turning off the runway onto our ramp. (laughs) And uh, as far as ramp, you know, hey, I was impressed with the ramp. You didn't have to even let me see anything else because uh, behind me was the uh, building that's uh, used for personnel that are there. T-38s come in and out with astronauts on training flights and coming to Kennedy for their work. Uh, So there were T-38s sitting on the ramp. There's the the building behind me with a big gorgeous logo of the uh, shuttle landing facility. Uh, 200 feet away or so was the mate-demate device for taking the shuttle off of the shuttle carrier aircraft when they fly it from Edwards to Cape Kennedy when it lands out west. Um, there was astronauts. There were dignitaries. There was NASA security with guns and dogs. And there was a rope around the you know, 50 or 100 foot area on the ramp. And they told us, don't go past that rope. I took that pretty seriously because even though working like I do around airports, this is no ordinary place. And so, uh, again, I appreciate the opportunity to be there. Uh, NASA, you know, is, is commendation for them. That was my first time there. And I'm a Florida boy. I lived in Florida all my life. And I know how hot it gets. And I know how you need to uh, take care of yourself in the heat. But after we were there for a while, one of the uh, NASA media escorts came over to me and asked me, how are you doing? How are you feeling? You okay? I said, sure. And the lady said, you've been drinking? And I said, well, no. Uh, and I said, uh, and I hesitated. She said, well, you need to be drinking. She said, it's pretty hot. And uh, I said, okay, you're right. And at that point, I realized, okay, I'm going to be a dummy if I ignore what she's saying. And she had a bottle of warm water that uh, they had a stock of, and she she handed me a new bottle of, of water. And uh, during the course of the next few hours, I gradually sipped that down and was quite thankful for it. So thanks to NASA for watching out for folks. Um, Got to be careful when you're out. And, uh, <laughs> you know, credit to the astronauts that we talked to later. You know, those those guys were in their flight suits, and they were sweating with the rest of us. It was one hot Florida morning. Wow. Um, so that's that's kind of a quick glimpse as to, you know, what it was like and the excitement of being there. And, uh, unfortunately, the C-5 was late. Oh, boy. <laughs> would, you, well. would, would you like me to talk about the C-5 just for fun? <laughs> 
Why not? Sure. Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get, get a good uh, grasp of what the environment was like when, when the, uh, when the uh, instrument landed. So it, was, it would be kind of neat to hear about uh, what the C-5 was. Well, this, this was one of three, five new, uh, I say new in that it's a modified C-5. It's called the C-5M, the Super Galaxy. Uh, so far, according to the handout, uh, the Air Force has three of them in their fleet, and they have plans to upgrade 52 more in the next six years. Um, it has set 42 world records, or broken 42 world records, with its payload and capacity and its their reach around the world. So it's a phenomenal aircraft. And when we did see it land and turn into the ramp, it's like, oh my gosh, that is a big airplane. Wow. And see. Go ahead, sir. And as they got closer, there was a uh, crewman that had a headset on to communicate with pilot and, you know, the folks in the cockpit. But there was a crewman that had his, uh, you know, chest and head out the top of the aircraft. They had a hatch up on top of the fuselage. And he was uh, he was their eyes for, for taxi and tight turns to, to move into the ramp. And uh, it's funny, as they made their, their final positioning and stop, his work was pretty much done and uh, the Air Force crewman had a camera, and he had the camera pointed over in our direction. And I realized from what I had seen on the ramp after I, I saw this photo, he was taking a picture of the NASA T-38 sitting on the ramp. So, you know, it was a, a photo op for uh, for him as much as it was for the rest of us. That's, that's kind of cool, actually. Uh, AMS will eventually wind up on the uh, S-3 truss of the... Uh, International Space Station, correct? Correct. And uh, I learned some things about that that uh, that we can go ahead and talk about now since you brought it up. Sure. From, from talking to one of the astronauts, which was Mike Fink. And it's funny. I'm getting confused because, you know, AMS is going to go up on STS-134, which is scheduled for late February of 2011. Of course, we've got STS-133 coming up in just over a month. That's correct, right. I know the names of the crew on 134 better than I do the names of the 133 crew. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. I won't tell anybody if you won't. Uh, no, I guess the goodness. cat's out of the bag now. So. <laughs> greatest, greatest respect for all of them. But getting to talk to a couple of the astronauts, uh, the, the commander, of course, is Mark Kelly. And I got to speak to Greg Shamatov and Mike Fink. And uh, they've also got Andrew Fustel and a... Um, European Space Agency astronaut from Italy, Roberto Vittori. Uh, pilot, which I left out, is is Greg Johnson. And I think that rounds out the crew of six. But it's interesting, on the shuttle crew, two of the crew are, are PhD-educated uh, you know, men that, uh, from talking with some of the scientists with this AMS project, gave me a better appreciation for what it means to have PhD after your name. And... Uh, you know, you think of the astronauts as being the uh, the men and women that that have the uh, the hardware in their hands that are doing the spacewalks, that are flying the shuttle, that are that are transferring cargo, that are doing all the all the grunt work of of the assembly of the space station and and of operating their own vehicle. But uh, you know, here I realize just how how incredibly educated and trained these people are. So got a lot of appreciation for that even even from an event that was supposed to be a payload arrival 
why don't you talk a little bit more about uh, the uh, the folks that were there and what they had to say about uh, AMS and about the, the STS-134 mission as a whole? Be glad to. Um, just for way of, of background, what about AMS-1? You know, what happened to yes. AMS-1? You know, here we are talking about AMS-2. Uh, AMS-1 flew on STS-91 in June of 98, and that was Discovery's flight. Uh, it was on orbit. It was a mission that took... Uh, the shuttle to Mir, and it delivered cargo to Mir. I do not remember the details. I believe they've carried, uh, I think it was the final shuttle flight to Mir, so I'm sure they brought uh, one of the NASA astronauts back that was that was part of that program. And uh, But AMS-1 was, was their science payload on that flight. Uh, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer 1 was a kind of a precursor. It was a Essentially, to some degree, it was a test, and it proved the concept of the detector that uh, its its next generation is what we're talking about for an up, the upcoming flight. But it uh, had a hundred and lost my note, but it had a hundred and eighty-four hours of operational time on orbit. Um, and I read where they had a total of one hundred million cosmic ray particles detected between. 0.1 giga electron volts and 100 giga electron volts. So AMS-1 was a success, and it was a building block for this. And that was in 1998, so 12 years ago. Wow. Um, you know, AMS-2 is something that has been in the works for 15 years. And uh, Dr. Samuel Ting is the principal investigator and the spokesperson for this program. He's a professor of physics at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize for a discovery of a new kind of matter, the J particle. Uh, by way of, of NASA-type commendations, he, in 2001, he, he received a NASA Public Service Medal. When you look at his bio and you look at his accomplishments, they go on for pages. The uh, the man is is a is a key part of the physics community, and with with his involvement and with I think essentially this is uh, I guess if he's the principal investigator this is his baby to a large extent even though we're talking about 16 countries and over 60 institutions that are part of it um, this is certainly something that he has put a, a lot of his career into. Wow. Um, now, did, did uh, each one of the uh, the scientists too uh, have a have a little bit of a presentation to make, or at least have some commentary while the uh, while the craft was uh, while the craft was sort of taxiing or anything like that? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm talking about it as if it's already here. But there was really a nice uh, introduction to AMS and to some of these key people of this collaboration that uh, that took place on the ramp before the aircraft arrived. Um, by way of a little bit of background, I'd like to uh, like to mention some things about Dr. Ting, and uh, if you'll give me a minute, uh, he was uh, he was born in 1936, and uh, his parents were Chinese uh, uh, professors in the Chinese educational system. They were visiting the U.S., so he was actually born in the U.S., but shortly after, of course, back to China where his, his family resided, and he was raised there. Well, unfortunately, that put him being a, uh, a child during World War II, and so his education, and I think this is phenomenal, his education did not start 
until he was 12 years old. Wow. Now, you know, of course, it's an advantage. His parents were both professors. They were in the university systems. Uh, much of his, his influence was by associates of theirs, and he always wanted to be part of university life. But um, he didn't start his education till he was 12. And uh, it says here that when he was 20 years old, and I'm reading from his autobiography on the uh, uh, Nobel Prize website, but when he was 20, he came to the U.S. to continue and, and, and have a, a, a good chance at a, a better education. A, a friend of his parents invited him to, uh, to live with them. And it's interesting. At that time, he says he knew very little English and had no idea of the cost of living in the U.S. He said that in China, he read that many American students go through college on their own resources, and he told his parents that he would do likewise. So when he arrived in the U.S. at 20 years old, he arrived at Detroit Airport in 1956 with $100. Wow. Talk about a typical success story. I mean, you know, a typical rags to riches story. Mm -hmm. Just someone that's really, really self-made, literally. Absolutely. He didn't know anybody. He, he said that since he depended on scholarships for his education, he worked real hard to keep them. And get this, in a matter of three years from when he arrived, he received his degree in both mathematics and physics, and he completed his Ph.D. degree in physics by 1962. So in a matter of six years, this young man got his, uh, his college degree, his, uh, his Ph.D. in physics in six years, and then he went on to, uh, to set even more records. So Dr. Ting is an incredible, an incredible scientist and uh, an inspiration for what you can do when you put your mind to it. Um, there were many other people there, but first I'll tell you what. How about if we play a clip where Dr. Ting started talking to the uh, group and then we'll comment on some of the other individuals that were there. Sounds good. Good morning. Uh, I'm very pleased to be here. It took us uh, almost 15 years to get here. Uh, before I describe the mission of AMS, I think it's, a, it's very important we recognize the usefulness of the space station. Space station, when people think about space station, people think about NASA, of course it's very, very important. But in addition to NASA, there are many foreign partners which make space station a reality. And so I will first ask Dr. Simona DePipo, who is the director of manned space flight for European Space Agency to ma to mention to you how so many countries, why so many countries work together to build a space station. Simona. One of the things that really impressed me uh, greatly about, uh, about AMS is the fact that it is an international collaboration. But having having an international collaboration here, I believe it's it's a it's sort of a, a consortium of, uh, of sixteen countries, correct? That are that are involved in this. It's, That's right. It, it's, it's in my eyes, it's really not a, a small thing at all to have have that. I think it's also fostering some 
uh, cooperation in countries, and it, it kind of says, "Hey, if we can we can cooperate at this level um, in, a, in a scientific endeavor, um, how come we can't cooperate in other areas as well?" So it, there, there's still hope for there's still hope for in politics as well. And I'm sure I'm sure that there will be some collaborations that uh, in the space programs arena and in science that uh, this is really, I think, setting the standard. And um, you know, we talk about the collaboration aspect of it. Here you are with NASA, the U.S. Department of Energy, but it says in the booklet that I received that a large portion of the cost to build AMS has come from international funding agencies. I mean, isn't that nice to find out that? Um, it's a collaboration, but it's not the U.S. doing almost everything and, and other people stickering it, you know, getting their logo on it. It's actually right. other countries and universities and educators and scientists. It's, a, it's, it's all these other people that were key to this happening. This wouldn't have happened on the U.S. alone, and we'll hear more about that. Uh, I'd like to go ahead with our, our next clip, which is uh, – the the woman that uh, Dr. Ting just introduced, it's Dr. Simonetta DiPipo. She's the ESA Director of Human Spaceflight, and she's the official representative of the Multilateral Coordination Board. Let's hear her speak. By all means. So, uh, thank you, Sam, for this uh, very kind introduction. I'm really proud and, and also lucky to be here today and uh, uh, representing in, in a way or another all the partnership of the ISS, of the International Space Station. And um, uh, I'm saying that because in my uh, capacity of the director, being the director of human space flight at the European Space Agency, I'm the official representative in the MCB, the Multilateral Coordination Board, which is the body managing uh, the uh, International Space Station. And we have uh, in this body represented uh, the five partners, namely NASA, Roscosmos, JAXA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency. And uh, uh, I have to say that uh, we, we just ended, at least uh, um, for what the... USOS, so the non-Russian part of the International Space Station, we just completed the assembly phase, and we're just now entering in the real full operational phase of the International Space Station. How important is uh, the international collaboration for ISS uh, is, is what I would like to stress here. Um, you have, if you look at the space station today, you see that uh, it has been a long, long um, process uh, to, to be here, to, to be able to, to reach this point. And uh, it, it, is, okay, it was difficult in a way or another. At the beginning, we had different cultures, different way of doing uh, our jobs. And at the end, we learned how to work internationally to build this fantastic and incredible uh, laboratory in orbit. Now that we are entering in the real utilization phase, and I hope this will be done for the next coming 10 or even 20 years from now, and we are working, all the partners, in order to assure that the International Space Station will be operational, uh, I hope, uh, until 2028 for the moment, so in the next coming two decades, we will have the possibility to show the world how uh, we can do together uh, what we want to do together. 
And um, in, in my capacity in Europe, um, on one side we have already, we are already an example of very good international collaboration because we are putting together uh, up to 18 countries, 14 working in the International Space Station, and we just got uh, the approval from the MCB, so from the Multilateral Control Board, to open up the utilization of uh, the European Columbus Lab to the uh, all member states of the European Union. Reason being that in this way we can really um, increase the opportunities for utilization of the space station. AMS today is another example of a huge international collaboration. ISS is an example of how we can do things together internationally. And I would say uh, the more we increase the number of participations, I mean, of members uh, participating in the space station, the better it is for the sake of science and for the future of space. So sorry to, to be so long in introducing, in introducing uh, the International Space Station, but I do believe that uh, what we are doing day by day uh, in space with the International Space Station is really unique. Uh, is again for the sake of science, but also because in the future uh, the exploration of the solar system must be done by definition on a global scale. Thank you. You know, one of the things that uh, that I feel like I should explain and remind people of is that we were at the airport, and so occasionally you hear a small plane fly by. Uh, you hear fuel trucks pull in and start to service the uh, NASA T-38s that were sitting there on the ramp. Um, in one part of the interviews coming up, uh, the C-5 is on the ramp, and we hear the uh, auxiliary power unit of the C-5 uh, cranking away in the background. And it's it's a bit distracting, but it's, uh, it's where we were. We weren't in a uh, conference room. We were waiting for the uh, payload to come off the aircraft. So uh, you kind of had to be there. And to me, it's just uh, part of the, the magic of, of the event. <laughs> she, uh, the, uh, Dr. DePepis did say something kind of, kind of interesting. You know, she was really, really fostering how uh, this was really, really a, an international effort, you know, and that uh, this whole thing is, is also occurring on an international platform. So, um, it seems to me that, that that there was a lot of lot of uh, uh, a lot of talk about uh, cooperation uh, and a lot of talk about uh, you know a whole consortium of countries working together to for a common common cause. So that's uh, that's really really good to hear. I hope that this international you know that, that the ISS is kind of sort of lit, lit the way a little bit with. Um, with an international uh, cooperative effort, and hopefully it will lead to more of this in, in the future. Well, it kind of highlights one of the changes that uh, we're starting to see, and, and in my case it's actually starting to sink in, that the uh, construction phase of the ISS is, uh, is pretty much over. Of course, AMS will be a, a payload attached to it, so I guess we could call that construction. But... Uh, it's at a point where they're really going to what their core job is, which is science. And, of course, we're going to hear about the maintenance activities that are part of life on the ISS, but we're going to be hearing a lot more about the science. And uh, uh, Dr. DiPipo, she, when you look at her qualifications and her background, uh, her list is, is nearly as impressive as Dr. Ting's. And 
and again just kind of highlighting the uh, the the incredible caliber of, of these of these people and the job that they've done. Uh, Dr. DePipo was you know currently is ESA director of human spaceflight. She's an astrophysicist. She's also worked for the Italian Space Agency. Uh, during her career, she's held key positions in fields such as Earth observation, advanced studies, robotic systems, the ISS program. She's been a delegate to the supervising board since 1988 and has had broad responsibilities in program management and international relations. And I'm not surprised. The international relations and AMS is, uh, again, the key thing of what we talk about. So, um, just out of curiosity, you mentioned the next clip with, uh, you know, the APUs. Who's, who do you have next on, no, no pun intended, who do you have next on the runway? Next coming in, uh, first another, another comment, and this was from Dr. Tang, and these are some excerpts from, from, uh, from what he, what, when he was speaking to the group. Uh, he said that he once spoke to Stephen Hawking and and that the question was asked why AMS is on the ISS and not on a satellite. And he told them that it was not possible to do a very, very precise, very sophisticated state-of-the-art detector to study the origin of the cosmos without the International Space Station because only the space station could provide the support of a large weight and the enormous amount of power. And without the... Uh, space station, AMS would not have been possible. Wow. Coming up next on the runway, uh, another comment before I do that uh, with Dr. Ting, he said he was very grateful, and he emphasized the very grateful part to the U.S. House and Senate for passing H.R. 6063 that supported uh, NASA's budget to have a flight to put AMS in space. Right, exactly. If I recall, that was this the program was actually supposed to end at 133, but um, because AMS was still in the pipeline and because it was such a an important experiment, uh, there was a hard lobby for one more flight to go ahead and launch uh, AMS and uh, it was put up the uh, the budget was it was uh, a line item in the budget. They put it in there and lo and behold, um, they won and uh, I'm glad that uh, or change, or change um, our uh, our Congress has actually seen the light and seen the scientific significance of what this could uh, this could overall uh, help us understand. So uh, hats off to our hired help on the Hill for allowing this to happen as well. It it certainly took their support and it's appreciated. I know by the entire collaboration and that team. Uh, Dr. Ting also he spoke of uh, the fact that they were checking, rechecking and double-checking the detector, and that they're quite confident that it will stay on the ISS for its lifetime. And he said that, so for the next 20 years, when you look at space and you see the ISS, he said you will see there is one detector, a very, very precise detector, that will be there to collect data. And, uh, you know, it just just makes you want to wave the flag. It's, uh, you know, it's almost (laughs) like they've won the race, but I know that there's still some nail biting going on to get the payload ready to uh, mate up with the shuttle and and go ahead and take it to orbit. But our next clip is uh, you know good segue. Our next clip goes right to that point because uh, our next clip is STS 
134 Commander Mark Kelly, and he's talking to the group. And I think that uh, it's always it's always something appreciated to get to hear one of the astronauts talk and and tell us uh, their side of the story. So, indeed, here we go with Commander Mark Kelly. So it's pretty exciting for us to be be part of this crew and part of this mission. You know, the space shuttle was designed to build a space station. And it did not get the opportunity to do that for the first 20 years of its life. And over the last 10 years, it's been very successful in assembling this very complex laboratory in space. I think it's fitting that on its last assembly mission, which will be our flight, STS-134, the space station is going to be complete. And I think it's important to note that it's going to be completed with a very complex and hopefully very successful uh, physics experiment. Um, We look forward to seeing the results that Dr. Ting is going to produce over the next decade. You know, we're excited about that. We're glad to be be part of this mission. You know, there's a lot of folks that have worked many years um, and put a lot of hours in to get this to the point it's at today. And uh, we're just, uh, we're a small part of that. Uh, We plan to do everything we can to get AMS successfully installed. So, Sam, I give you our guarantee we're not going to break it. Um, Box is not going to drop it into space. Um, It'll get installed uh, on the truss and hopefully be working before we depart. Well, I, I could tell Mark Kelly's got one heck of a sense of humor, that's for sure. But he did make a great point and also a, a kind of sad point, too, in a way. Um, he's right. That was the absolute purpose of the space shuttle. Um, it was initially devised back in the, the 70s. It was actually envisioned as part of a system uh, to go ahead and assemble a permanent space station in low Earth orbit and to service that space station over the, the life of, of, the, uh, of the orbiter. Unfortunately, it really, really did not go ahead and get the opportunity to live up to that potential until essentially the end of its life. But it, here, here we are now, and uh, the, or, the, the, the shuttle fleet has indeed done its job uh, in assembling the International Space Station. And this, you know, leading... A, uh, a science instrument such as uh, the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer on board is sort of the uh, you know the icing on the cake. Um, it really, really signals that uh, the space station is indeed open for science and open for business as far as uh, as far as becoming a, a true scientific platform. So uh, again, that was an extraordinarily good point by uh, by astronaut Mark Kelly. Got another clip coming up. It's uh, Professor Manuel Aguilar. He is the AMS coordinator for Spain. He's a physicist uh, on Spain's contributions to AMS, and I'll go ahead and uh, and roll his comments. And I hope no one is getting tired of of how we're emphasizing the international collaboration of this, because this, again, is what struck me as being so unique. So, as I mentioned... This experiment, even though it is a United States Department of Energy-sponsored international collaboration, it is mostly built in Europe and in Asia. The next person 
I would like to introduce to you is Dr. Manuel Aguilar, who is a member of the Royal Spanish Academy of Sciences. Good morning. I'm really very pleased to be here at Kennedy Space Center, which for AMS is the last exit to space. I have been coordinating for almost 15 years the efforts made in Spain. We have contributed to build part of the detectors. And at this time, I think it is important to recall what Professor Ting has said. AMS is not a DOE experiment, it's not a NASA experiment, it's not a CERN experiment, it's not a NISA experiment. It's an experiment which has been built by scientific institutions in 16 countries, in the United States, in Europe, and in Asia. And the main recognition and the main appreciation has to go to the people in these institutions we have contributed to integrate, to build and integrate this experiment in the last few years. I found a uh, mention in a memorandum of understanding regarding AMS that uh, it, it said that this memorandum, memorandum of understanding is not legally binding, but the signatories recognize that the success of the collaboration depends on all its members adhering to its provisions. Financial contributions are subject to availability of budgetary funds. And, you know, that is a problem in every country, getting budgetary support for, for programs. And, uh, and they pulled it off. They pulled it off. And it's uh, my understanding that when AMS is on station and operating, that the uh, mission control, if you will, is going to be at, uh, I believe, at CERN. It's going to be part of ESA's operation. So uh, they will be controlling and, uh, and and operating the instrument on station. Will there be, do you know if uh, anybody um, at uh, the, uh, the Station Mission Control Center will also have any type of input as far as... Uh, uh, you know, power and, and all that to AMS. I'm, I'm guessing they would, since since the uh, uh, power for the station is controlled from there. Uh, yes, I'm sure that they'll. It'll be a again a, a partnership and a. I, I remember hearing some ISS uh, audio at times where they check in with their various mission control centers around the world, and I believe they do a roll call with Roscosmos and JAXA and ESA. And uh, and the U.S. ISS control center, and I may be leaving somebody out. Hopefully not, but uh, but it really takes all partners to to stay involved with it. When uh, Dr. DePipo was was speaking, I don't know if I mentioned it, but I remember her comment that uh, they had an agreement that was going to open up the Columbus module to participation from all of ESA's member countries for uh, you know for science for uh, research to go on board in the Columbus module. And uh, I think that's interesting because it opens up what the ISS is all about to an even wider scope than what we're used to hearing. Indeed. Um, it sounds like it would be a grand opportunity for, for a lot of uh, uh, you know, universities to go ahead and get involved uh, with uh, scientific studies on board the International Space Station. So um, and I'm Plus, uh, I'm sure that uh, there may actually be folks here in the United States that might give them a call, so who knows. You know, I was just thinking about, uh, here we are talking about all of the, the aspects of the collaboration, 
And we're not going to go into the, the science of what the alpha magnetic spectrometer is all about because i got to be honest, I don't even know how to pronounce some of the words that I read, much <laughs> less understand what they mean. But uh, by comparison, we hear about the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. And uh, from the uh, from the AMS co- uh, organization, I've got a, a booklet that says that although the LHC is the largest accelerator on Earth, producing particles with energies of a few tera electron volts to EV, the highest energy particles are produced in the cosmos. Cosmic rays with energies of up to about 100 million tera electron volts have been detected from space by a uh, experiment in Argentina, which is a large array of 1,600 detectors. So, you know, AMS is is up there to detect even higher energy uh, particles than what we can produce on Earth. Um, I understand that charged particles that AMS is going to be looking for are mostly absorbed by Earth's atmosphere and cannot be studied easily on the ground. And uh, it says that AMS will be unique in its 1 in 10 billion sensitivity, its long duration, and the high statistics mission to explore the science of charged cosmic rays. Um, It really stands out even more and more as being something that is unlike anything we've ever seen before, and it'll be making some great contributions to science. I know we've got some people that we've talked to that will be giving us a little bit of the better understanding of the science involved, and I'm looking forward to that. What was, oh, after the, the uh, uh, I guess after all the speakers, the one thing that really, again, Mark, the one thing that really, really strikes me is each one of these individuals that spoke, uh, the, the, at least the, the scientists, uh, really gave everybody a clear understanding that, that um uh, this was not a you know just strictly a NASA experiment. This was not strictly a Department of Energy experiment. This was not strictly ESA experiment, experimenting with it. This was everybody working together uh, to try to make this a, a reality. And uh, uh, again, the international flavor of this is is just really really cool. It, it really to me tells me that that uh, you know all the, the the probably all the uh, the table. Uh, you know the mashing of fists on the table and things like that that probably occurred was all worth it and uh, I, I can't wait to see this thing finally up there and, and doing what it needs to do there's going to be some really good science coming out of this Well, it's interesting to me for instance uh, one of the professors that spoke to the group was from Germany it's Professor Klaus Lewelsmeyer mm-hmm. and uh, in his introduction and in his short comments he said uh, I'm here for the second time the first time was in 1998 with AMS-1, and uh, the representative uh, from Taiwan, Professor Lee, he spoke about uh, contributions. He spoke about the electronic systems. He said that some of the control and uh, most of the electronic systems were produced in Taiwan and that uh, China produced the permanent magnet for AMS. And again, a reminder, the permanent magnet that's now part of AMS-2 flew in space on AMS-1 and it is uh, a 1998, did I say, flight? So yes, we've sir. got a uh, hardware that flew 12 years ago, and, of course, the magnet itself is older than that. So it's interesting to have some proven, space-proven components that are now part of this uh, modernized and even more powerful detector. 
I've got another clip, um, you know, talking about some of the uh, nuts and bolts here. I've got another clip. It's from one of the uh, NASA representatives. It's NASA Program Manager Mark Sestilli from Washington. Hi, my name is Mark Sestilli. I'm the NASA AMS Program Manager. Uh, on behalf of my boss, Bill Gerstemeyer, who could not be here today, I want to thank the entire team here at Johnson and Kennedy uh, for doing all the magnificent preparations that are required to get AMS to the point it is now. Uh, as you all know, AMS will be on the space station. AMS represents essentially one of the main reasons we built the space station, to carry major big payloads like this uh, for long years on station. Uh, the science potential on AMS is just incredible. Uh, and NASA is very, very proud to have this experiment on the agency's premier space vehicle uh, in a very, very real sense. Okay, AMS could very well open up a whole new chapter in the exploration of the galaxy and beyond, and NASA is proud to be part of this. Yeah, it kind of makes me stand up and take notice when, when NASA says they're very, very proud to be part of this. I know. That's what I was just thinking. We're, this is big time. This is major league. This isn't. Uh, this isn't. Uh, uh, you know. This isn't the junior leagues. This isn't the uh, Sandlot baseball. This is. This is a really, a really big deal for everybody. And another another gentleman that was there from NASA, and that was uh, Trent Martin. He's the NASA AMS project manager from Johnson Space Center, and he talks about the work that his team did to make sure that that what the scientists and the engineers did was correct and that it was space qualified. And he said that, you know, here, to be honest, think about this. This is 15 years in the coming. Uh, during this time, they had the, uh, the Columbia tragedy to where the space program, uh, as far as shuttle launches and ops, stopped for a period of time. And he said that during the 15 years of the collaboration, there have been a lot of ups and downs. And, of course, we already talked about the, the HR uh, 6063, I believe it was, that gave them the budget to, to carry AMS to the space station. So they, they mean that quite literally. This was no simple thing. But, uh, and here we go. We're, we're still moving forward and getting closer and closer to launch. I read somewhere, too, and, and more correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that AMS initially was supposed to be up there for only about three years and then returned on the orbiter. But because of the Columbia accident and what happened, that uh, it was decided to just go ahead and leave the instrument on, on station. Quite true. And, uh, you know, in talking about what the statement you just said reminds me that I like to have people keep their eyes open if they're looking on the web, if it's even in some of the links that we provide with our show notes. Keep in mind that it was just a few months ago, and uh, I'll, I'll mention where I got this from. This was from uh, Dr. Saul Gonzalez. He's from Washington. He's with the U.S. Department of Energy, their Office of High Energy Physics. Okay, who even knew that the Department of Energy had an Office of High Energy Physics? Well, talking to Dr. Gonzalez, I asked him about the change of the superconducting magnet, which you're referring to, where it would have been up there for three years and then brought back to the permanent magnet. And he said that to have everybody's support behind that change... And to let them go forward in literally months was unheard of in this business. Did he did he elaborate as far as what challenges they had, or or um, uh, what uh, uh, you know what 
roadblocks they ran into do, to doing that, but I would imagine there'd be there'd be plenty. It, 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 to me, it looks like it was a fun, almost a fundamental design change. Well, it was a design change that they had the capability of making, but it was a, a change that uh, that they made the decision of okay, we can get three years of data that is is. I'm sorry, I don't know the proper terms to describe this. They they would probably get let's let me use a real amateur phrase better data with a superconducting magnet. But by switching to a permanent magnet, they've got the opportunity to operate this for 10, 20 years for the life of the detector, the life of the ISS. And so by having that long of a lifetime on station, they're going to get science and particle detection that they wouldn't necessarily get in in just the matter of three years. And one of the scientists that I spoke to at that uh, arrival event, uh, I said, I said, I, d- I don't understand how this detector works, but I, th- I think in terms of telescopes and, and optical devices to where you have a certain field of view of, of what the instrument will pick up. I said, what's the field of view of, of the AMS detector? And I believe his answer, and forgive me if I'm wrong, anyone please correct me if they have uh, proper data, but I believe his answer was about a 45 degree wide um, either side of where it's pointed, 45 degrees either side field of view. And so that's the part of the sky that they can, uh, that they can watch. And I read, uh, this is what I was starting to make reference to, in some of the links in the Internet sites, this change from the superconducting magnet to the permanent magnet took place in the spring of this year. And so most of what's on the websites is for the magnet that they're not flying. It's, it's for that superconducting magnet. And that's minor stuff because the, the basic components, the detectors, the, the things that, I, that I, I look at the pictures and I see a, uh, a TRD device, a silicon tracker, something called an ECAL, E-C-A-L, a uh, time-of-flight TOF detector. The magnet itself, a uh, an R I C H, a rim, a, a <laughs> ring imaging Cherenkov. Oh, the T R D is a transition radio detector. Uh, rim image Cherenkov counter, uh, an anti coincidence counter. <laughs> you know, there's there's all the instruments that I guess were common with either magnet, but uh, mm-hmm. it, it gives them you know some long long term readings off of it. Here we go, a little more AMS trivia. Uh, the, the AMS weighs seven and a half tons. It measures five meters by four meters by three meters. It has, listen to this, I'm impressed with tech stuff. It has 600, <laughs> and, yeah, I'm sorry, Gene. I, I gotta, no, it's all good. I am too. This is amazing. I got to geek out for a minute. It's got 650 microprocessors. It has 300,000 channels to collect, process, and transmit scientific data from space via a tracking data relay satellite to the AMS ground stations for analysis. A data stream of 7 gigabytes per second will be produced, which after online processing will be reduced to a 6 megabyte average downlink bandwidth. Wow. Holy cow, Batman. 
they got a <laughs> they got a fire hose going through a restrictor, and it's still going to give them record setting information. Oh, uh, wow, that's amazing! An, another little tidbit: part of the change that where they they went from the semi uh, superconducting magnet to the permanent magnet. When they did that, they had to take the device back to CERN, and they actually put the detector uh, in the CERN test beam for physics calibration. So they actually shot known particles through the detector, measured the response of the detector as part of their calibration. They're continuing this work in the space station processing facility at Kennedy Space Center up until the point where it's readied for... um, um, mating with the uh, space shuttle for as a payload, it's actually sitting there. When it's when it's available for the scientists to do their testing, it's it's operating. It's operating, sitting on the ground, and they're continuing their <laughs> testing and calibration of the device. And so, oh, that's okay, amazing. When I was talking to Mike Fink and to the German scientist, I said, uh, "What's the process when you get to the ISS of of installing this?" And here in a nutshell, well, we pick it up with a space station, I mean with the uh, the shuttle remote manipulator arm, we move it over and hand it to the ISS remote manipulator arm, it takes it and puts it down on the attach point that you mentioned earlier on the S3 truss, mm-hmm. the process of locking it down and making all of the connections to the instrument are remotely controlled. And he said, as soon as it's locked down, it, they turn it on and it's ready to go. Wow. So they do all the dudes just as soon as the thing locks on, they all have to do is just turn it on and, and, and you're, you're open for business. Power it up. Turn that, it on. That's because <laughs> I, I remember, too, a lot of other experiments that they've flown or a lot of other equipment that they've flown. They've had to go ahead, wait a couple of days and, and uh, you know, do some calibrations or, or just, you know, run some tests, make sure things are fine. This thing, all you do, talk about plug and, pr- and play. I mean, all you do is just, <laughs> just go ahead and, and set it up and, 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 and off, off to the races you go. That's amazing. Uh, that they're, you know, I'm sure that there's some little, you know, little tweaks that they'll probably want to go ahead and make sure the thing's operating right. But this is, this is just, this is too cool. Um, just as an end note, we're hoping to go ahead and include in, in the show notes. There's a neat video that I think uh, uh, NASA is responsible for. Um, it is a QuickTime video, and uh, that, that demonstrates on how they're going to go ahead and install uh, AMS. So we'll, we'll go ahead and include that in the show notes as well. Um, so when when this thing came off the the C the C five mark, what did it really? really look like it was all just all zipped up and packed up in a nice little little package or, or was there any uh you know what what, the, what what was the feeling when this thing came off hey i well i tell you i would have loved shiny pretty pokey things sticking out but what we saw was in my mind it was a uh a Big kind of a it was kind of a frame no actually it was a frame and it was really? wrapped in in clear protective uh film so, you know, it was covered up because okay. uh, I, I talked to uh, Mark Sestilli and I said, well, gee, you're doing pretty good. You've got uh, we were standing on the ramp waiting for the crane to lift it and set it on the transport so they could take it over to the uh, uh, processing facility. And I said, you've you got the weather going for you. That's pretty good here in Florida. He says, well, we're not there yet. He said it takes us an hour and a half from when we uh, bring it out to transfer it to the trailer to get it inside. And he said, uh, we're watching some thunderstorms that are 
uh, across the state, he said, but uh, we should be okay. So, so things went well then? <laughs> it, things went well. Cool. Um, as, as far as what there was to see, you were looking at, again, a frame with, with plastic protective covering on it. And you could see the instrument through the film, but you couldn't see it clearly. Well, I do have one more clip, Gene, and uh, this is, uh, again, it's part of the aggravation of being on the airport, because this is the one I mentioned <laughs> where we've got the uh, APU of the C5, you know, whining in the background. And uh, the gentleman that I was speaking to is is a Frenchman, and uh, that's a challenge for me. I'm a Florida boy, like I said, but it was fascinating. It was fascinating to talk to him. And listening to it, I realized that I was nodding my head as we spoke, and it was just about one ear and out the other, because even some of the simple terms that he spoke of, we're going to get some clarification I know we need in the future. But uh, this is Dr. Jean-Pierre Vialet. He's the French coordinator at the LAPP, which is the Laboratory d'Anne, Les Vues, Les Physiques des Particles in France. It's a laboratory 50 kilometers from Geneva, and uh, here's, here's what he had to say when we spoke about AMS. Yes, I'm, I'm Jean-Pierre Vial. I'm a French coordinator of AMS. So I coordinate the, the work of the French labs in this collaboration. The, uh, the part of the, are you associated with particular components of the AMS, or is it an overall work that you participate in? Uh, yes, in France, we, we work on the electromagnetic armature, that's the last part of the, seen by the particles, uh, and especially it allows to, uh, to identify uh, light particles like uh, gamma rays and electrons. And uh, another lab has worked on the rich detector, the ring imaging Cherenkov detector, this is to, uh, to, to measure the light nuclei and also we, we have the responsibility of the GPS system because it's important to correlate the event of AMS with other satellites or experiments in space. So we can fly each particle going through the detector with a universal time and correlate the, the events. Well, Gene, that pretty much winds up my uh, my interviews from the AMS arrival event. Um, you know, one additional comment, and this was from my discussion with Dr. Saul Gonzalez from the Department of Energy. He said this collaboration was over 600 physicists, many more engineers, and technical help from NASA and other places, including the funding agencies that we've already referred to that they tapped into uh, university technical teams. So there were many, many, many people. And he said, and I thought this was, uh, this was very, uh, very gracious and also gives you an impression of, of how wide the scope they feel is part of their collaboration. He also said that the crew of 14 that was on the C-5 uh, Super Galaxy that flew him over from Geneva, and he was on board the aircraft, he said he considers that crew of 14 to be part of the collaboration as well. And he said that they had a beautiful takeoff and landing, and he said that everybody is essential. That's super. I mean, that is really super. Because it really just goes to show how much you know Esprit de Corps uh, really is involved in, in all of this. That maybe you know we're all in this boat from the guy that you know sweeps the floor at the uh, 
at the assembly area to to the folks that bring you know bring the uh, the instrument over to the uh, to the scientist that uh, is going to be using and actually using the instrument and studying the data that all of these people are involved in one way or another in the, in the success of the project so that was really really big of that gentleman to go ahead and, and say that really seriously by the way your French is great Mark <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you know, after listening to uh, Jean-Pierre several times, I've, I've, I got the pronunciation of his name a bit, and I just kind of uh, stumbled through the rest. But I, I appreciate everyone uh, accommodating me on this. I'm, again, not a scientist, and uh, I wonder if, Gene, we shouldn't go to school for a few years and, you know, improve our education. But I got a feeling that if we did that, we'd miss a, a lot of good news. So... I guess we'll just have to carry on with what we're doing and rely on some experts to come in and help us out from time to time. Indeed, we are. In fact, uh, we are. We've actually put in a. Uh, we've actually asked someone to come on board uh, and help us out a little bit with uh, with covering AMS, and that is uh, our uh, our dear friend uh, Dr. Catherine Qualfaro, who is uh, has her own little little blog. It's called Q Space. We will put the. Uh, uh, that into the show notes as well, but she will also be helping us a little bit to tell the AMS story and to uh, really, really get a grasp of uh, of what's going on with this particular experiment package. Because the more and more I read about it, the more and more I'm fascinated with it, and it is. Uh, I have to thank her profusely for deciding to come on board to help us out with this because uh, it it will be neat to have a uh, a genuine you know, astrophysicist come on board and uh, and really, really really take us to school as far as what, what, what AMS is really, really all about. And I'm looking forward to having her on the team. Me too, most definitely. So Mark, again, thank you for representing uh, Talking Space uh, at, uh, at the AMS rollout. Um, you know, I mean, it must have been one heck of an exciting, uh, exciting event to, to be at. And, and you, you represented uh, uh both uh, you know Gina and, and Sawyer and myself very very well, and I'm I'm absolutely thrilled. I mean, I'm, I'm actually I'm not joking. I'm actually getting some goosebumps just thinking about about this experiment and what it's uh, what it's going what its whole purpose is. And uh, I have to thank NASA profusely also for allowing us in the door and uh, allowing us to go ahead and tell this part of the AMS story. And I'm looking forward to. Uh, um, to going ahead and, and telling more more about it because it is one heck of a fascinating experiment. So again, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time out and, and being there. My pleasure. And you know, I'm not really all that brave. It's uh, having the confidence that comes from having you and Sawyer and Gina behind me that uh, pushed me out the door and out onto the ramp. So my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Hope everyone enjoys this and I hope you keep us uh, Keep us on your list of shows to keep up with because we're going to have some even better things coming down the road. We'll be talking more about AMS as time goes on, and uh, I'm looking forward with with great uh, with great excitement for February when the planned launch of STS-134 is set. Indeed, I am too. And uh, we've also got a f- uh, just as a, a programming note, we do have a few more rabbits to go ahead and pull out of our hat. No pun intended. Um, so stay tuned. We've got some surprise co- prizes coming down the pike uh, for uh, for the upcoming shuttle mission, and we have some other little interesting interesting little uh, uh, tidbits we're also going to toss out there. So keep listening, folks. 
again, uh, Mark, thank you so much for for, uh, for filing the report. It was just absolutely fascinating sitting here listening to it, and I hope our listeners felt the same way. So, Gene, tell me, do you think we ought to turn this over and uh, have Sawyer insert his famous uh, see ya at the end? <laughs> eh, why not? We'll let him do it, even though he wasn't here. Okay, Sawyer, take it away. It's all yours. Thanks, guys. I know you asked for it. And by the way, thank you for a great show. And uh, to all of our listeners, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Thank you.